Amen. It's good to see everybody this morning. As Mark said, it's been several weeks since I've been able to teach. Uh, some of that was vacation. Some of that was Hurricane Sally. Some of that was having our second little girl, uh, seven pound, nine ounce bundle of joy. And uh, so we've been celebrating Psalm 127.3, that children are a heritage of the Lord. And we've also been trying to preach that to ourselves when we are sleepless and sleep deprived. They are a blessing. They are a blessing. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm excited that we're going to be studying through John chapter 19, verses 1 to 11 this morning. Uh, because I've not been here, I will be preaching at least 10 sermons in one today, uh, so I apologize for that. Uh, but there is actually so much here in this text that is so profound and so significant about what Mark said, our King, King Jesus, and the fact that He is on the throne even when it appears that he's not. And we're going to see that even more clearly here in this text. Let me read the text to us. John 19, 1 to 11. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to, to them, to the religious leaders, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, the religious leaders again, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is the word of the Lord. So just as a, a reminder, let's go back just a little bit. I know sometimes we get flack for going back, but you guys watch many series and TV shows and every episode does a recap. So we're going to have a little recap here for one second. Back to John 18. I was looking at it this week and as we look backwards on what we've studied since John 18, it's really interesting. John is repeatedly forcing and calling for a decision. Who will you choose? Which will you choose? And this is all the things that he's forcing us to, to wrestle with. Which garden will you choose? You remember Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley and went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's a retelling of the betrayal in the first garden. Which garden will you choose? The garden of betrayal or the garden of hope and restoration? Which authority will you choose? The Roman soldiers. We talked about it. Some scholars say upwards of 600 even likely came out to the Garden of Gethsemane to take Jesus into their control and under their power. And Jesus asked three times, who are you seeking? And they say three times, Jesus. And three times Jesus responds, I am. And with the breath of his mouth, they are all knocked down. Which authority will you choose? Which power will you choose? The power of man or the power of of I am. Which high priest? Jesus is before Annas in John chapter 18. Only John records that story. 
Annas was the patriarchal high priest, the one, if you could say it this way, was the high priest of all high priests. He was the one with supposed ultimate authority to mediate between man and God. And John forces the question, will you choose a man-made high priest or will you choose the true high priest, Jesus? Which fire? Peter stands over the fire of betrayal, charcoal fire, warming himself and betrays Jesus. And then later in John, we're going to see Peter restored before Jesus in repentance and restoration over a charcoal fire. Which fire? Will you choose the fire of betrayal or the, the fire of restoration? And then a few weeks ago, Tommy taught, we talked about which kingdom. Jesus talks about the nature of his kingdom. Pilate's asking him questions about his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says it twice. Sandwiched between those two statements, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my servants would have come fighting. So there's something about the distinguishing mark between the kingdoms of the world, the nature of the kingdoms of the world, fighting and animosity and power hungry and grasping for control, and the kingdom of God, which is in its nature, by its nature, serving and sacrificial and giving. Which kingdom will you choose? And then last week, Jack taught, and we talked about the two different Jesuses, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of Barabbas. Which one will you choose? The insurrectionist or the one who came to die on your behalf? And this week, what we're looking at in John 19, 1 to 11, John forces us to answer the question, which king will you choose? So we talked about the nature of the kingdom in, in John 18, and now we're going to learn about the nature of the king. And it's important for us to understand, this is what John is, is, is telling us and teaching us, is, is he's showing us exactly who Jesus is. And that's one of the things we're going to see this morning. He's a sacrificial king, he's an innocent king, and he's the true king with all authority. We'll see that in this text. But then the important thing John wants us to see is how Jesus uses his power and authority and how radically different it is, his use of it, from the way the kingdoms of the world and the kings of the world use their power and authority. And again, he's going to call for a response and a decision. Which king will you use? Which king will you choose, rather? Which king will you follow? Which king will you bow before? The one who, who, who claims power but is actually weak or the one who is perceived weak but actually has true power? So that's where we're going in this text this morning. Let's see who Jesus is. And let's understand why the nature of his kingdom is so radically different. John 19.1.11 tells us that it's because the nature of the king is different. The reason the kingdom of God is not from this world is because the king is not from this world. And what we learn here is a little bit about the DNA and the nature of the true king. And the first thing we see is that he is a sacrificial substitutionary king. We see this in the first few verses. Again, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, you may be familiar, maybe because you've read the accounts of, of the Passion of the Christ. Maybe you've seen Mel Gibson's portrayal of the Passion of the Christ. Maybe you've seen or read historical documents about, uh, about flogging, Roman flogging. The, the word flogging here means to beat severely beyond recognition. Matthew and Mark use the word scourge. And in both contexts, the the meaning of it is clear. It is a severe punishment, a severe beating. 
Now, in Roman context, there were three different types. There was the minimal beating. It's, I'm going to teach you a lesson beating. And then there was the, the beating, the severe whipping and flogging and scourging with a whip that preceded crucifixion. And that's what Jesus received. The entire point was to reduce a man to nothing. The entire point of a scourging, of a flogging, was to prove who has true power. Look at us. We have power over you, subject, servant, and we will show you. We will reduce, we will use our power to crush you and reduce your power right before we kill you. That's what this means when it says that Jesus is flogged. There were different ways to do this. The Romans would have multiple ways to do this. If you were a Roman citizen, it was used, uh, a a reed or a whip was used. I'm sorry, a reed or a rod was used, and you were just beaten with a stick. If you were a servant or a subject, then they would beat you with a whip. That whip would have multiple strands, and it would have bone and metal in the end of that, and it would wrap around your body and rip flesh from you. And it would literally reduce a man to nothing. It was intended to humiliate and ridicule and reduce a person to absolute nothingness. To make a statement. You think you have power? We, Rome, will show you who has true power. That's what's happening here. But they they don't just stop with flogging. John goes on and he says that the soldiers twisted a together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. In other gospel writers, they say that they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they beat him with a a scepter, something they made look like a scepter. They beat him in the head with the crown of thorns on. What's going on here? They are going to the greatest degree possible to humiliate and to ridicule and to reduce Jesus to nothing. But don't miss, they're making a statement about themselves in doing this. We have true power. We have ultimate authority. But John wants us to see something different, and he wants us to ask a different question. Are the Romans humiliating Jesus, or is Jesus actually voluntarily humbling himself? He wants us to ask the question and wrestle with this, because we've read and we've studied everything leading up to chapter 19, and we've seen the miracles, and we've seen the power, and we've seen the the storms stopped, and the paralyzed healed, and the blind seeing, and, and we've seen all of this. We know that Jesus has true power and ultimate authority. And so what's happening here? What's going on? And John is forcing us to see and ask the question, who's actually in control? Are the Romans humiliating Jesus or is Jesus humbling himself? And it gets to the very heartbeat of who Jesus is and the very heartbeat of the nature of our true king. See, the reason that the nature of the kingdom of God is so radically different is because the nature of the king is so radically different. Jesus did not come clamoring for power, grasping for authority. He came with all authority and he came laying it down. And he willingly suffered this humiliation, willingly suffered this scourging, In Mark chapter 10, he's already said it. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. To become a ransom or to be a ransom 
for many. A sacrifice, a substitute for many. So what we already know and what John is reiterating is that the Romans are, don't have true power. Jesus has true power. But wait, he's being beaten here, John. What's happening? Jesus is humbling himself. He's submitting himself. He's, he's bowing low. He's taking this humiliation. And what we see, when we see Jesus arrested and bound and brutally beaten and bruised, we see a weak and a feeble man, but the Bible sees something different. The Bible writers see something different. What we're being told here is that this is part and fulfillment of God's plan from the very beginning to redeem sinful man. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we learn that God is going to send a son, the son of woman, to, to be born of a woman, to, to be bruised. And, and, and then, of course, to Satan, God says, but he will bruise your head. And there's two different words there for bruising. One means you will wound his heel, and the other means he will crush your head. How is he going to crush the head of the enemy, the great enemy, Satan? by being crushed on our behalf. Completely contrary to anything that we would ever write or come up with. He's not the kind of king looking at this scene that we would ever imagine or ever choose, but this is the king that God has sent with all power and all authority, bowing low on our behalf. Isaiah says that he will come, he's the suffering servant, he will come marred beyond semblance, despised and rejected, wounded, crushed, oppressed, afflicted, like a lamb that's led to the, led to the slaughter. And before this scene ever happens, make no mistake, Jesus already told the disciples this would happen. Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. I will be delivered up over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him, the Son of God to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So who's really in charge? Is it the Romans? Is it man? Or is it God? Is it the Son of God? Is it the true King? And what's he doing with that power? Is true power taking authority and lording it over others and reducing them to nothing, or Jesus is forcing us to recognize and ask and realize, is true power actually reducing yourself for the sake of others? What's Jesus doing with his power? He's reducing himself. He's humbling himself. He's voluntarily being humiliated and ridiculed and crushed on our behalf. This is... So important for us to see because at the heartbeat of who we are because of sin, because of Genesis 3 and our rebellion, what we did in Genesis 3 was we lifted our fists to God. We lifted our weapons to God, as C.S. Lewis says. We raised our attitudes and, and, and our actions towards God and said, we make better kings, we make better rulers, I know what's best for my life, and that's exactly how we live, and that's exactly what my two-year-old says every single day to me. I know what's best for me. No, no, not good for me to eat that. No, no, not good for me to take a bath right now. I know what's best for me. And we live like little two-year-olds every day before an infinitely sovereign, powerful God because of sin. You say, well, what's the answer? John's giving us the answer. The answer is that we need a sacrificial substitute. 
Don't, don't read this and, and see and make this a law. Okay, well, Jesus humbled himself to scourgings and, 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 and mockery, so therefore I should humble myself. That's what I should do. Certainly we should follow in his footsteps in submitting ourselves and considering others better than ourselves, Philippians chapter 2. But we will never humble ourselves to this point. I barely humble myself when someone corrects me and tells me I'm wrong. Jesus humbles himself to sinful man, sinful men mocking him. Mocking in the other gospels, it means to dance around. Oh, you think you're king. Let's see your power now. In fact, that's what they say when he's raised on the cross. Oh, let's see him take himself down from the, from the cross now. And John and all of the gospel writers want us to see and want us to ask, was it nails that held Jesus to the cross? Was it Roman soldiers that put him there? Or was it Jesus himself? And because of his great love for us. So we have a king who is humbling himself, who Philippians, Paul says in Philippians, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, pouring himself out, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And why did he do this? Because we desperately need an innocent substitute. And that's the second thing we begin to learn about Jesus, is that he is our innocent substitute. In fact, Pilate makes it abundantly clear. The text makes it abundantly clear. John wants you to see it with abundant clarity. Three different times Pilate says... 1838, 1904, and 196. He is innocent. In Luke, uh, Luke recounts Pilate saying this, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Jesus is innocent. Pilate says it in 19.4, and, and, and Pilate went out again and said to the religious leaders, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him a second amazing phrase, Behold the man. He's innocent. Behold the man. Now there's a couple of ways we can understand what Pilate's saying, and then we always know John is capturing these these human statements, and there's so much more that this man is saying than he knows, knows better. There's a couple of ways we can understand what Pilate's saying. So Jesus is innocent, but then when he says, behold the man, he is also saying, and he's harmless. This is the man that you think is going to overthrow Rome? This is the man that you think that you're so intimidated by, religious leaders? This is the man What Pilate's trying to do is show that he's not only innocent, but he's also harmless. And in both cases, even though Jesus is innocent, and even though he's harmless according to what they're saying here, both Pilate and the religious leaders still pursue his death. So what's John telling us? Even though the truth is abundantly clear, these men, Gentile and Jew, regardless are still sinful and guilty before God. Even though the truth is abundantly clear, they still choose to rebel. They still are choosing to rebel against a holy God. 
Jesus is innocent and harmless. The trial should be over, yet both Jew and Gentile press forward with his death. And what John shows us is the tragedy of sin, the tragedy of the sinfulness of man. Though the truth is clear, both Jew and Gentile persist in rebellion and are guilty before God. But there's good news in this text. The good news is the substitutionary, sacrificial, innocent, perfect lamb that they've just beaten that they've just flogged, that they've just mocked. The hope and the good news of this text is that Jesus is indeed the man. He is the perfect man. He is the perfect, obedient man. He is the perfect God-man substitute on our behalf. And he is the perfect, innocent, spotless one who has come to do no harm. Instead, to be harmed on our behalf. And so John again forces the question, will you trust in the flawed earthly kings of this world or will you trust the perfect, innocent, spotless King Jesus? Will your hope be in yourself, in the kingdom of self, or will your hope be in the kingdom of God, in the king of the kingdom, Jesus Who will you bow before? Who will you submit to? Which way leads to life? We will all submit to a king and both will lead to death, but only one leads to life. Jesus, who is your king? Which will you choose? And that leads us further in the text to seeing more about who Jesus is and this this other aspect of what John wants us to see is that he's the true king with all authority. Though he's innocent, though he's been humiliated and ridiculed, the crowds and religious leaders still want Jesus dead. Uh, Pilate's still going to be complicit. And they shout, verse 6, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate is frustrated. He thought this was his new means, new strategy of, of releasing Jesus. I'll beat him beyond recognition and I'll show him to be harmless and then they'll have to, have to, I'll make it easy for him and they'll have to decide to, to release him. But what do they do? They say, no, we want him dead. We don't just want him harmed. We don't just want him maimed. We don't just want him found guilty. We want him dead. They are guilty. And they say, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And they say something interesting. Verse 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Because he has made himself the son of God. So they're saying that the law stands over this man. That this man has claimed something. He's made himself something. The law that they're likely referring to is Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, kill him, destroy him. This is what they're appealing to. Initially it was, hey, he's, he's claiming to be king and overthrow Rome. You need to execute this man. That didn't work. Okay, we'll tell Pilate he's, he's claiming he's breaking one of our laws. It's a religious matter now. He's, it's a spiritual matter. He's claiming to be the son of God or make himself the son of God. Now here's the irony of the text. That claim only works if he is not actually the son of God. Here's what's fascinating. 
the religious leaders know this, the high priests know this, most of the, the people know this, that they have been anticipating and waiting on a king sent by God for centuries. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is the high king. He's the king that everyone loves and worships and celebrates and they want. They want more of him. And, and God comes to him and they, he makes a promise to him. I will establish a king on your throne and his kingdom will last forever. But he will not just be any ordinary king. He will be a son to me. He will be the son of God. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's this expectation that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be the son of God, would come as the son of God, would come with the authority of God, would come with the power of God, would come with miracles of God, would come in the supernatural nature of God, would show up and bring healing in his wings, would bring liberty and set the captives free. What has Jesus been doing for 19 chapters? What is clear and obvious to everyone who reads this text? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the King. Jesus has all power. Jesus has all authority. He came and He healed the paralyzed and gave sight to the blind and stopped the storms and walked on the water and fed thousands. He has that power. He is the true King. And He has all authority. John's readers, you and I, we must decide, does Jesus make himself the Son of God or is he the Son of God? Does Jesus make himself a king or is he the king? This is being forced in the text. And Pilate is even more scared now. It says in verse 8, when Pilate heard this, his, this statement, he was even more afraid. Now what's he afraid of? Now it's not... It's, it's not uncommon in, in, in Roman mythology, in Roman religion, you know, they had a pantheon of gods, they had multiple uh, you know, deities that they worshipped. It's not uncommon in their understanding for the gods to come down and to take on human form. Did Pilate, Pilate wonders, did I just flog one of the gods? And it's also not uncommon, it was practice of the day, to deify the, the emperors. To, in fact, many, some while they were alive, many after they died, they called the Son of God. And they deified. Did I just flog one of the emperors? Pilate's terrified now. He has no idea. He's conflicted. He's confused. But John does not want you to be. John is writing, John chapter 20, verse 31, his entire purpose and point of writing the gospel of John is so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And by believing, we would have eternal life. This is why John's writing. He wants to clarify it. He wants Pilate to know certainly. He wants the religious leaders to know certainly. And he wants you to know and me to know and to have no shadow of doubt. He is making it abundantly clear. Jesus is not just a God. He is the God. He's not just a son of God. He is the son of God. He's not just a king. He is the king. Will you bow before him? Will you honor him? Will you exalt him? Will you lower yourself and exalt him and enthrone him? Now, here's what's fascinating. What does Jesus do with this power? How does Jesus use his power? How does Jesus wield his power? 
How does he bring his power and his authority to bear in our lives? Many of us wonder, if I submit to to Jesus, he might ask me to move somewhere, to go do something, or to give up something. Yes, absolutely, he might. But it is always for your good and his glory. It is always infinitely better than your plan or mine. And we begin to see that here in this text, and we see more of this wrangling and this power dynamics in the text. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? I'm sorry, he went back inside, he asked Jesus, where are you from? That's a question of, of origin, not geography. He's not asking, are you from Spanish Fort? He's, he's, he's asking him, are you from heaven? Are you a God? And Jesus doesn't answer him. He's already answered him. My kingdom is not from this world. Twice. So this infuriates Pilate. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? I love this verse. The irony of this verse. It's dripping from the, the, the text. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? The word authority there, it, it means Decision-making power. Do you not know, Pilate is reminding Jesus, do you not know I'm in charge here? Do you not know I have decision-making power over you? I have the power to give you life or to give you death. Don't miss the irony of this text. This little man is saying to I am Do you not know who I am? This little king is saying to the king, Do you not know I have authority? This little man is saying, I have authority over life and death. He's saying to the one who is the author of life. That's amazing. The irony is so amazing. It's so thick. But also, so is the arrogance. Do you not know I'm in charge here? Isn't that how we live our lives? Do you not know this is not what I want? This is not how I would call the shots. This is not what I would do. Do you not know who I am? Do you not know what I want? Do you not know what I, my will is here? And, and Pilate is so arrogant in this text. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Ver, chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus has already said in John 17, 2, that the authority to give life has been given to him, particularly the authority to give eternal life. And here this little man is boasting before infinite king. Now, how does Jesus respond? More importantly, what does Jesus not do in this text? Pilate has scourged him, had him scourged, had him flogged, had him beaten, had him bruised. He's he's bloodied him, he's ridiculed him, he's humiliated him. He's boasted in his power before him. He's taken him out to the religious leaders and and he's showed them this beaten, humiliated man. They've cried out for his death. How does Jesus respond in verse 11? How would any normal earthly king respond if he had ultimate authority and ultimate power? He would crush Pilate. He would obliterate the religious leaders, as he should. They're guilty. 
that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus responds with enormous, immense, supernatural, only God-given, God-enabled, Holy Spirit-inspired patience and grace. He says in verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority, no decision-making power over me at all. You would have absolutely no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Here's, here's an important phrase, from above. Anytime we see that phrase in the Gospel of John, it always refers to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, God himself. In John chapter 3, when, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he's, he says, you must be born again, born from above. He's talking about born out of this world, of, uh, of, of God, of the kingdom of God. It's a supernatural spirit in, in, in acting and he says here to Pilate, you would have no authority were it not given to you, given, granted, bestowed on you. Your authority is borrowed. It's on loan from God above. Now there's two ways because the second verse somewhat confuses and makes it maybe complicated. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There's two ways of understanding these two verses, or this verse, and there's two ways of understanding it. One is on an earthly level, and the other is on a greater spiritual level in what Jesus is communicating. The first, and John is always masterful at this. He's doing this all the time. He's, He's saying things, he's capturing things that communicate something in an earthly manner, but then also communicate a greater more amazing, supernatural, heaven-oriented statement. The, on the earthly level, you would have no authority over me unless it had not been given to you from above. Caesar is the one who has given Pilate authority. And Pilate's authority is borrowed in that sense. And then he says, therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. This is a trick question. Who delivered Jesus over to Pilate? That word delivered over is an interesting Greek word. It means, it's paradidomai, and it means to hand over, give over, give up, deliver up, deliver over. And it's used unbelievably throughout the the New Testament. And the first place, if we work backwards through the text, that someone paradidomai, Jesus, it was Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, the one who's supposed to know the law, who's supposed to mediate between man and God, who's supposed to know the expectations of the Messiah, he is with greater sin. But who handed him Jesus over to Caiaphas? We go back in the text and it was Annas, the patriarchal high priest, who's supposed to know even more and is supposed to to know all of the ins and outs of, of who Jesus is and and what he's claimed to be, but also all the law and all the expectations. But who handed Jesus over to Annas? Judas, who walked intimately with Jesus and knows him intimately and knows all of his teachings intimately. But then what what does John tell us? There's a greater spiritual activity at play here. Who was behind Judas's betrayal and who thought that he was betraying Jesus to death, to be crushed, to be destroyed, to be gotten rid of. John 13, 2, our great enemy, Satan. 
put it in the mind of Judas, and led him to betray Jesus. So what is, what is happening here? What we're seeing here is this is not the first time someone thought they had the upper hand over Jesus. This is not the first time that someone thought that they were going to crush Jesus, bruise Jesus. In fact, when Jesus is in the wilderness in Luke chapter 2, or chapter 4 rather, in verses 5 to 7, when Luke is uh, recounting Jesus' wandering time in the wilderness when he's tempted by Satan, Satan, it says, took him up and showed him, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give, didomai, all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered or paradidomide to me, and I give it to whom all I will. What is going on here? John is capturing both the earthly and the heavenly, the spiritual. John is telling us and showing us that, that just like Pilate, even Satan has the illusion of power. Do you hear that? Even Satan has the illusion of power, but there's a radical difference between power and ultimate authority. Judas thought he had power. Satan thought he had power. Pilate thought he had power. Caiaphas thought he had power. Annas thought he had power, but Jesus says it's all on loan. And it's all subject to the ultimate authority of, the, of my heavenly Father, of God above. And if you study that word, that Greek word paradidomai, I encourage you to go take a look at it. Do a word study on delivered up, delivered over. It's used repeatedly throughout the New Testament. In this text, what we learn is that Caiaphas, Pilate, Pilate's going to say, it's going to be later in, in John, he's going to deliver over Jesus. Pilate delivers over, Caius delivers over, Annas delivers over, Judas delivers over, Satan delivered over. But ultimately, it was God delivering over Jesus on our behalf. God is at work behind all of this. They are absolutely responsible. They have sin and the greater sin. Ignorant sin and knowledgeable sin is still sin and rebellion. And they're both and they're all responsible. But over all of this, God is working. Just think of a few verses. John 3.16 God didomied his only son that we might have eternal life. Acts 2.23, Jesus was parodidomide up according to the definite plan of the Father. Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was parodidomide up for our trespasses and raised that we might be justified, set free, released, and no longer condemned. I thought Pilate had the authority to set free and... Make us no longer condemned. No, Jesus has that authority. Paul goes further, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Paul, oh, he's so encouraging with trying to encourage us and give us confident assurance in God's love for us. He says, God, who did not spare his own son, but paradidomide him, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 Though these men think that they have power, they, have not, they do not have ultimate authority. Though Satan thinks he has power and it's his to give to Jesus, he has not 
He does not have ultimate authority. God is delivering up Jesus on our behalf. 1 John 4.10, that he is putting forward Jesus on our behalf, offering him up. But make no mistake, the text of the scriptures tell us repeatedly Jesus volunteered for the job. Jesus willingly humbled himself. He considered others, Philippians 2, counted others more significant, emptied himself, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5.2, he gave himself up for me. And husbands, what's your motivation to love your wife? Because Christ did this, gave himself up for his bride. This is the good news of the gospel. This is our true king. He has all power, all authority. He did not come to wield it as he should have over Pilate and the religious leaders, to crush them, he came to be crushed on their behalf. He didn't come to crush you, he came to be crushed on your behalf. This is the good news of the gospel. And that leads us to a response. Before we look at this final response, I want you guys to think about with your families today, to look at Philippians chapter 2 and to look at the attitude that Jesus has and how he uses his power and his authority And then I want us all to wrestle with and ask if that's the nature of the true king and the nature of the true king is in my heart, then that should be what I look like and sound like on an incrementally growing basis. Sacrificial, submissive, humble, considering the needs of others. Let's look at this last point. Jesus, John calls for a response. He's been doing it through this text, but he does this again here in this text. In John 19.11, we see a bloody, beaten, flogged, mocked king condemned to die. And John leverages this to show us the nature of the kings of the world and the nature of the true king. The nature of the kingdoms of the world and the nature of the kingdom of God. And he forces the question, will you choose the one that's perceived weak but with all authority? Or will you choose the one that's perceived with power but absolutely no authority. The choice is between man and Jesus. Will you trust in yourself and your perceived authority and your perceived power and your perceived wisdom and your perceived knowledge, or will you trust in King Jesus who has all power and all authority, who yielded it on your behalf? Is this your king? Is this the king you hope in? This beaten, bruised, bloody? Think about it. No one in their right mind would choose this king. It's the backwards, upside-down way of the gospel. You're absolutely right. No one would choose this king. He came to die on our behalf. Will you choose humility or pride? Will you choose the lowly, beaten, bloody servant king who died on your behalf? Or will you choose to be your own king, trust in yourself and your own wisdom and power? Now, here's what's interesting. History has a terrible way of recording irony. It's recorded in history that Pilate, when he was, when the Caesar at the time, when the emperor at the time was tired of Pilate and had used him up and gotten all that he wanted out of Pilate, he discarded Pilate 
and exiled him to Gaul, where he then commanded Pilate, demanded him to commit suicide. And standing right in front of of Pilate at this moment is the true king offering to discard himself so that Pilate can have true life. But Pilate wants nothing to do with him. And John forces us to ask, will we make that same mistake? Will we be like the irreligious Pilate who thinks, I'm king, don't you know who I am? I know what I, what's best for my life. I can handle this. I've got it. Will we be like Pilate and reject Jesus? Will we be like the religious leaders, religious thinking that they are honoring God, but in fact they're crucifying him? We know what's best. We know how to handle this. God, that's not the Messiah that you would send, beaten, bloody, flogged, and and bruised. No, no, no. We want the king that's coming with all power and all authority and going to crush Rome. That's the way it's supposed to be. We know what's best. And what are they doing? They're doing the same thing Pilate is. They're keeping God at a distance and playing God themselves. Which will you be? Or will we walk the middle way of the gospel, bowing before King Jesus, acknowledging in both instances, I have absolutely no authority, no power. He is king and I must submit to him. In all ways, at all times, in all places. And if you're like me, that is one of the most difficult things about the Christian life. Because that's, I don't submit. I don't lower myself. I don't, I, I don't naturally do this. I naturally rise up, boast, puff my chest. And so I have to rely on the gospel daily, moment by moment. Trusting in and hoping in and looking to my servant, king, innocent, substitute, with all power, and say, yes, Jesus, you're in charge. Those are the decisions that we're forced to ask in this question, in this text, and where questions we're forced to ask and answer. Let's pray. Father, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak. Lord, we, we've mined the depths of your word, but there is infinitely more in this text. We've just touched the surface. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use this word. May we see clearly the two ways, the two kingdoms, the two kings. One leading to life, the other leading to death. May we see the wounded Son and Savior sacrificed on our behalf. May we hope in Him. May we have... Enable us, give us the power and the strength to humble ourselves. Holy Spirit, I know that you, when your word is read, when your word is preached and proclaimed, it does not return void. I pray that that would be true this morning. I pray as we continue to meditate on these truths, as we sing these songs about our innocent Savior who bled and died, that it would move past the head of information about floggings and scourging and everything else to the heart, that we would see that you did this because of love to substitute yourself on our behalf. May we humble ourselves and hope in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.